0: Everybody and welcome to today's presentation on using a strength-based biopsychosocial approach to recovery from antisocial personality disorder. This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com/counselortoolbox to register like we've been talking about through this series, a lot of people think of personality disorders as not treatable and not recoverable. And while the person will always have those behaviors somewhere in the back of their mind, I personally believe that they can learn more effective coping behaviors so they can file away the ineffective ones. Um, We can't completely unlearn any behavior once it's been learned it's kind of in our brains forever but we can archive it and that's kind of what we're hoping to do with these particular patients so we're going to define the um, antisocial personality disorder examine the similarities between the behaviors of certain personality disorders and addictions, Um, a lot of times when we see people in early recovery, when we see people in residential treatment or detox, you know, really, really early recovery is what we're talking about, Um, they have a lot of antisocial traits. So we're going to talk about why someone in early recovery may present in a way that looks antisocial um, when they actually don't meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder. In my 20-some-odd years um, working as a clinician, I think I have encountered two people who I would actually give a APD diagnosis. So, you know, I think while we need to be careful because personality disorders do stigmatize people a lot more than even addictions, um, you know, we'll just kind of look at those behaviors so you can make your own decision. We're going to identify ways to address these behaviors and thought patterns, and I really want to encourage you to critically examine the behaviors in patients with addiction in order to effectively differentially diagnose. Um, When I first started working in substance abuse, and I say substance abuse not co-occurring because this was back in the day. Um, before they realized that co-occurring disorders were the expectation, not the exception. Um, that's kind of my key phrase everywhere I go. But when I was working in that particular environment in substance abuse, the psychiatrist that we were working with at that point, our attending, would not diagnose depression, anxiety, bipolar, any of the, uh, any mental health diagnosis at all until the person had six months of clean time. Now that always made me scratch my head because i'm like well if they were drinking because they were trying to you know cover up or escape from their depression granted the drinking's making the depression worse and it could be causing some of the depression but if we don't treat the depression all we're going to end up with some is with some is with someone who is clean and still really really depressed and struggling to exist struggling to survive um so we want to look at characteristics people are expressing in um, early recovery as things that need to be identified and dealt with. It may be situational. It may be time-limited. As they go through early recovery and their brain and body kind of balance out and, you know, find their rhythm again, it may go away. It may, may quote, spontaneously remit. But during that period, in order to help them stay clean – and alive, we need to be able to address anything that is causing them difficulty or distress and not get too hung up on if it 's a diagnosis or what what little cubby we need to stick it in. When personality disorders are viewed as pervasive and perpetual, it provides people with an excuse for relapse. If we tell someone well you 've got borderline personality disorder then they have heard over and over again, probably, from other treatment centers that personality disorders are intractable. So if you are going to be emotionally unstable all the time and you're constantly going to have all these difficulties in relationships and communication and emotional control, you know, from that perspective, if somebody's telling me that, I can see why they may not want to give up their addiction because that seems like you would need an outlet somewhere. So I don't want to give them an excuse for relapse. I want to say, let's look at what you're doing, figure out why you're doing it, and see if we can figure out a better way to achieve that same end. It also often derails treatment because patterns of behavior thought to be due to the personality disorder are often ignored. Um... I remember working with clients and clinicians in uh, residential treatment and in IOP, and we would do our clinical staffing every week, and I would hear clinicians say something to the effect of, well, that person's borderline, so there's nothing we can do about that. And I would just want to pull my hair out. I'm like, no, that's not true. The behaviors are serving a purpose. What is the purpose? We need to figure out what that is. It may be... In order to, you know, artificially change the biochemistry, it, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons people can do stuff. But there is a benefit. We don't do things that don't have a benefit. Personality disordered and addictive behaviors often look the same. When someone is detoxing or craving or withdrawing from a substance, they're going to tend to be more anger more emotionally all over the place, have more difficulty focusing and functioning, and they may tend to lash out. You know, the addiction is protecting them. It is keeping them safe, if you will, from the agony that is going on inside their head. It's helping them escape. So when they start to sober up, that agony comes back. It's kind of like after you have surgery and the pain pill wears off, and you're like, oh, this really, really sucks. That person is trying to survive they're trying to exist so what happens think you know again if you've had surgery and like maybe dental surgery i'm a big sissy about anything in my head you know ears teeth whatever when you wake up and that initial pain pain medication wears off are you in the best mood are you wanting to be jovial and deal with people are you ready to take crap from anybody Likely not. Physical pain is one thing. Emotional pain is just as real and just as pervasive. So we need to try to understand that this person is hurting, and they're lashing out in a way to try to protect themselves and try to survive. Getting in their head and figuring out, and that's whether it's an addiction or a personality disorder, getting in their head and figuring out how their behaviors are helping them accomplish that. Will help us go, will go a long way to helping us help them. Goals for recovery for both addictions and personality disorders. They need to get honest with themselves and others about their thoughts, feelings, needs, and wants. They need to figure out what, how am I feeling? A lot of people have just numbed it out. We've talked about borderline, we've talked about histrionic, we've talked about um, narcissistic. Most of these people don't stop and go, oh, what is my internal state today? They are struggling to get approval. They are struggling to be lavished with praise. They are struggling for external validation because they can't, they don't know what's going on inside themselves. They rely on other people to tell them. Now, the narcissist obviously thinks they're all that, but they still need to be lavished with praise, They also need to start to get honest with others. And people with either disorder um, really have a difficult time communicating in an effective, assertive manner. Again, go back to that time when you had oral surgery and the pain pill wore off. And people were not doing what you asked them to do. And it was so frustrating. Or maybe you were in the hospital. And you know how in the hospital they wake you up like every four hours. And you're just like, please let me sleep. Um, You can see where this might end up making somebody a little bit cranky. So they end up communicating in a way that's not assertive. And they often don't communicate their needs effectively. They're just like, get out and leave me alone. Okay. Distress tolerance and the ability to self-soothe. People with addictions... Whatever's going on has just overwhelmed them, and they cannot take one more thing. Now, while they're in the midst of their addiction, whatever that stuff is that's causing them distress is getting worse because they're not dealing with it. So when they sober up, it's like having a wound on your arm that you haven't you know, treated, you haven't put anything on. You just put a Band-Aid over it and left it all dirty and everything. It's going to get infected. So when they sober up, it's just overwhelming times 10 plus whatever substances or activities they're using in order to escape are monkeying with their brain chemistry so we need to help people develop distress tolerance so they don't need to use again with personality disorders we have talked at length about the fact that when the external validation is not forthcoming the person becomes frantic this frantic state of being leads to acting out physically, acting out um, aggressively, maybe towards oneself or towards somebody else. But if we help people with PDs learn distress tolerance and the ability to self-soothe, then they won't need to act out. That's a whole lot easier said than done. So I don't want to make it sound like, oh, well, you just need to teach them to count to 10. If counting to 10 worked, they wouldn't be in our office. Hope and faith in themselves, the future, and others through addressing cognitive errors. If they're in your office for either disorder, they have experienced disappointment in themselves. They've been betrayed, likely, by others. They felt let down. They may have been abandoned in their own mind. Now, they may not have been abandoned until they were, you know, chest deep in their addiction and people started cutting them off, but they feel abandoned whether it's right or wrong this is these are the feelings they have they don't have faith in themselves others or the process starting out with your treatment plan you can help them develop faith and hope in themselves if you do the next right thing you can do it you know the little little engine that could i think i can i think i can it's baby steps and i'm not wanting somebody to go from being in residential treatment to being a mid-level manager of a company or thinking that they're fixed when they leave. What I want is for them to see that with time, things can get a little bit better. I want them to keep journals. I want them to keep logs. I want them to keep something so they can review it on a daily basis and see not only vulnerabilities that may be making things worse so we can intervene, but they can see that as they work the process, as they work the program, whatever the program is, things start to get better. And then we can start looking at addressing how they interact with others and any cognitive errors um, as it relates to their relationships. Development of self-esteem to eliminate the need for external validation. I think that's self-explanatory. And then, and only then, can they start developing healthy, supportive relationships. They need to be able to feel okay about themselves and not be trying to fill a void. I've made the example before of cookies because I love cookies Um, Sugar cookies on their own are very very good Chocolate chips on their own are very very good We want a relationship that is like sugar cookies and chocolate chips When you put them together you get chocolate chip cookies, and they're very very good But you can also separate them and they can stand alone so, remembering that personality disorders represent a cluster of behaviors that's pervasive beginning before the age of 15. A lot of times these addictive behaviors also do. Due to immature cognitive development, ch- children tend to be more egocentric, overgeneralized, and think in terms of dichotomies. They can't say, well, mom is drinking herself into a stupor, um, it must be somebody else's fault, or mom got mad at me and told me I was the worst child ever today. But, you know, that must be because she had a bad day and she's just lashing out. That's not how kids think. Kids are very egocentric. And whatever's going on, especially with their primary caregivers, not only do you risk them taking personally, but even once they get past that egocentric phase a little bit, as long as the person is dependent on the family system, they can't move out on their own, then they are also going to try to maintain homeostasis. They don't want mom to go to jail. They don't want mom to overdose. They want to try to keep everything together as dysfunctional as it may be. Um, So we've got to remember what these kids may be going through when you have an 8-year-old tucking their parent in on the sofa because she's too drunk to get up to her own bed. How does that child process things? How does he understand why she's doing what she's doing? From a survival perspective, most of these behaviors make perfect sense when viewed through the eyes of the child at that age. So we want to go back and say, let's talk about when things, you know, your childhood and when things got rough. And yeah, I'm not one to go back and say, you know, let's go back and blame everything on your mother um, or your father or your childhood. But everything we've learned up until now, the good and the bad, has gotten us to this point. So we need to figure out where we left the tracks. Since these behaviors form the foundation for further development, we need to encourage patients to understand their function in the past. In the past, when you would, you know, self-harm, why were you doing that? How did it help you? What was its survival function? Identify how these behaviors and beliefs are faulty in the present. Okay, so when you got really, really stressed and you felt out of control, you would self-harm. All right. In the present um, do you need to self-harm what other options are out there for you that you could choose and we can even look at some things and I always refer back especially for a borderline but for all of your cluster B dialectical behavior therapy is very very effective um, what can you do differently in terms of self-harm instead of cutting sometimes people will take a uh, red ink pen and draw on themselves Sometimes they will hold ice cubes in both hands. Both of these are less dysfunctional, less injurious, but they do serve sort of a distraction from the intrapsychic pain that's going on. Is this where I want them to stop? No. But is it a stop gap between actually cutting and where I want them to be? Sure. So then we start developing alternate skills to use when you get distressed what else can you do what else might help how can you identify what's going on and be mindful of yourself before you get to the point where you're out of control and we want to empower our clients to interface with the world with the strengths knowledge and tools of the adult many times they stop learning coping tools coping skills at a very very young age Um, So we want to look at that. When we work with people with addictions, a lot of times their psychosocial development appears to kind of stop wherever the addiction really took hold. Now, addictive behaviors were going on before that, but when the addiction really took hold and that was the preeminent focus of everything they were thinking about, that's sort of where development stopped in many cases. So addictions represent one way to cope with the stress and c- can begin early in life. They have a lot of overlapping symptoms with personality disorders, especially Cluster B. Reviewing re- really quick because we've been talking in the series about Cluster B, but we're going to talk about um, in general right now. Cluster A is your paranoid, schizoid, and schizotypal. People in this category are characterized by social awkwardness and withdrawal. When people come into treatment for addiction, it's probably been a long time since they've interacted with anybody while they were sober. So they may feel very socially awkward, and they may feel withdrawn, and they may not make eye contact right away. So I do want to see as they sober up and as they learn to function on a day-to-day basis without using an addiction, does the social awkwardness seem to go away? Most of the time, yes, but, you know, it happens when, you know, you might have someone who does have some co-occurring stuff going on. Cluster C, and yes, I know, this is not in order. Obsessive, compulsive, and dependent. Cluster C is characterized as being anxious and fearful. Um, It may co-occur with addiction. I have not experienced a lot of patients that would meet the criteria for either obsessive-compulsive personality disorder Or Dependent personality disorder, but since the behaviors represent a group of behaviors that Are present when someone is anxious and fearful and since addictions tend to numb out anxiety fear anger You can see where they might co-occur and then cluster B is our dramatic emotional erratic behavior Which often overlaps with addiction when you're using? You're Jekyll. When you're withdrawing, you're Hyde. And when you're somewhere in between, nobody knows what to expect of you. So, you know, that's overly simplified, but that kind of helps you understand where the erratic behavior comes from. Cluster B, dramatic, emotional, erratic behavior, all or nothing thinking, hostility and aggression, hypersensitivity, they're manipulative, and tend to have a low self-esteem or weak self-concept, except the narcissist's. So, now to our antisocials. Conformity to law is lacking. Well, let's think about that. If they want what they want when they want it, then sometimes conforming to the law is just going to be very inconvenient. There's likely been no consequences for them um, if they have not conformed to the law, or the rewards have been greater. If the person is also an addict... Likely, because of their addiction, they've also broken the law. Hmm. Okay. So let's think about that. A lot of addictions, you know, even people who are alcoholics have probably driven drunk. That is a violation of the law. So conformity to the law lacking, yeah. Yeah, that could be addiction. That could be antisocial. Uh, What we want to look for is do they break laws everywhere, you know, in... Do they break laws in every at work, at home, etc.? Um, and do they commit what you would consider violent or um, criminal offenses? Their obligations are ignored. This person doesn't have, and we're going to get down to it, um, empathy or remorse. And I don't want to confuse lack of empathy with lack of feelings. Because people with narcissism and people with antisocial personality disorder definitely have feelings, but it's about what happens to them. Think more in terms of like the five-year-old child. When they don't get their own way, all hell breaks loose. Um, It's not because they hurt somebody else. It's because they got caught and they didn't get what they wanted. Which brings us to reckless disregard for the safety or self of others. So putting people in harm's way um, and not respecting their physical and personal boundaries, stealing from them, um, using them in any way necessary in order to get what they want because they wanted it. The person with antisocial personality disorder is really focused on reward through external means. They get something and it makes them happy. They get power when they beat the system, and that makes them really, really happy. Um, so we're getting the dopamine, we're getting the pleasure chemicals, which is teaching people. I mean, they're learning through this that, you know, if I break the law, that's quite a rush. I don't want to do that again, which is not something we want them to learn. They tend to be underhanded, deceitful, lying, and conning others. When people are in their addictions, they will do whatever it takes to get that substance. A lot of times, by the time they get to this point, sobering up is not an option because the pain is just too great. So they may lie, they manipulate, they may con others, um, rationalize, minimize, justify, and deny are are our big ones uh, in order to try to make sure that nobody takes away their substances. You know, I wasn't using or maybe I had a few drinks, but so-and-so had more, Um, they will always try to make themselves look better. The person with antisocial personality disorder will also manipulate and call on others to get what they want. Planning is insufficient. They're impulsive. They don't think, gee, I want to buy a car, so I guess maybe I should save up some money, and if I put $50 aside each week, no. They're like, I want a car. I'm going to go steal one. Because that is what they want right now. They have no ability to delay gratification. When you're working with someone with with an addiction, most of their inability to delay gratification involves numbing that pain. Once that pain is under control, that impulsivity goes away quite a bit. Now, there's some habitual ways of acting and reacting that need to be worked on in treatment. But this is another way you can differentiate between the personality disorder and maybe just addiction. Temper, irritable and aggressive. Well, if you're using um, stimulants, you could be irritable and aggressive. If you are detoxing or withdrawing from any addiction, uh, whether it be behavioral or chemical, you're not getting as much of the pleasure chemicals your, your brain chemistry is kind of out of whack, so you're feeling worse. It's not you're feeling baseline. You're feeling well below baseline, normal, or, you know, you're feeling pretty bad, irritable, and aggressive. So when you've got somebody in treatment for addiction, and they're also presenting with depression and anxiety symptoms, which most people in early recovery do, Do we really want to start saying, okay, you have all these symptoms, now let's start putting them into categories so we can give you diagnoses? My thought, my preference, my ethical stance is no. Um, If they meet the criteria for substance abuse, we know, or, or addiction, we know that their brain chemistry is wonky. We know that they're not going to feel happy. We know that there's a chance that they're going to have a lot of anxiety, because you know they've disappointed, hurt and and messed with a lot of people, so there's a reason to be anxious, there's a reason to be depressed, aside from just wonky neurochemistry. They have these symptoms, okay, so let's deal with those. Let's not worry about saying, "Well, but you also didn't you also broke the law. you know you've got a rap sheet three pages long um, let's look at what in what ways they broke the law was it DUIs? multiple DUIs? well that kind of takes me back to the addiction was it theft and burglary? all right possibly personality disorder but that's also possibly supporting the addiction Did they ignore obligations? well if they don't care about anybody else but themselves as in the personality disorder, then sure, it might qualify over there. If they are in their addiction and they are just, they're so focused on getting their drug of choice and not withdrawing to the point where they start feeling the pain again, they're not focusing on anything else. They're obsessed with that substance. So, you know, most of our addicts really don't have a good track record of showing up to work and picking up kids when they're supposed to have visitation and all that kind of stuff not because they don't care, not because they don't have remorse, but because they can't do it. It's just they can't deal with the pain on their own without any other tools. Now, can they learn tools in 12-step programs? Sure. Can they learn tools in smart recovery? Sure. Can they learn tools in treatment? Sure. I'm not saying that the tools aren't out there, but I'm saying until they decide that they are ready to Try something new. Sobering up or withdrawing is going to be really excruciating. Uh, In early recovery, especially early, early recovery when someone is involuntarily referred to treatment, there may be a lack of remorse, minimization of anything that they're doing, justifying their actions. What I want to hear is Do they not have remorse for anybody? Is there anybody they care about? You know, most people, you know, except for people with antisocial personality disorder, do care about other people and other things their mom, their spouse, their significant other, their child, their baby mama, whatever the case may be. There is someone else they care about, and if I start seeing that, then I start going, I don't think this is a personality disorder. Necessarily now, obviously they don't have to have all these criteria, but remorse is a big one for antisocial We've already talked about how underhanded presents in both diagnoses and impulsivity and irritability So hopefully I've painted a picture where you can see where someone with an addiction But not a personality disorder may have all of these symptoms in early recovery once they get Out of that early recovery, three to six months, you'll see a lot of these criteria disappear. If you can get a accurate report of what their life was like before the addiction, especially if their addiction didn't start till later in life, you may see that these behaviors didn't exist. Even if they did, if somebody learned a behavior when they were eight, in order to Survive for some reason. It's going to take a while to kind of undo that learning because it's something that they was learned and it was tried and true and it's pretty well ingrained. Why would some? Why would a child under the age of fifteen not conform to the law? Well, maybe there was no no one there to make them. You know, my kids sometimes don't want to do their lessons. Um, My kid, all children want to push their boundaries. And if they're in an environment that is supportive of law-abiding or law conformity, then they're going to learn that. If they're in an environment that doesn't set any boundaries, that doesn't teach them, you know, that they have to obey the law for anything, worse yet, if they're in an environment where people are breaking the law left and right and seem to be benefiting from it, then this is going to be ingrained in them. They're like, why should I... Conform to the law, it doesn't do anything for me, and I can get what I want a lot easier if I don't behave the way the law says I should. Another thing that you can look at, and I call it kind of my cockroach theory when someone breaks the law and gets caught, they've probably broken the law a bunch of times before that, and they just don't get caught every time. So, you know, bearing that in mind as a child. Obligations are ignored. Why would a child not learn to adhere to obligations? If you're a parent, that's probably a pretty easy one to answer. Children have to be learned, they have to be taught to adhere to their promises, to not let people down. They have to learn that if they make an obligation, they've got to keep it or there will be consequences. If there are no consequences, if they grew up in a situation where mom said she was going to show up to your baseball game and she didn't, you know, dad was supposed to pick you up for visitation and he didn't, where the primary caregivers are constantly ignoring their obligations, you can see where this child might not learn the value of keeping their promises. Reckless disregard for the safety of self for others. Adrenaline is really fun. You know, Um, and I am not an adrenaline junkie. I will not go skydiving. I am terribly afraid of heights. Um, So I'm probably not a good one to talk about that. But there are people who really like adrenaline and they get that rush. If they're feeling depressed, if they're feeling blah, if they're feeling down, they get a rush from adrenaline activities, um, which can lead to reckless disregard because eventually – the safe activities aren't going to produce that rush anymore. The other way this can be learned by a child is if no one was there to protect them, if their primary caregivers had reckless disregard for their safety for whatever reason, they may figure, well, I'm going to do what I want, and if somebody gets hurt, tough winks. All three of these can be retaught as the person goes through treatment. They can learn to conform to the rules. If they're in residential, there are a lot of rules. And I've had clients come to me and be like, I wish I would have done straight time because I hate it here. Jail's easier. I'm like, well, yeah, jail is easier. <laughs> Go back and finish chores. Um, helping them conform to rules. And in the first 30 days of recovery, they're still kind of in a fog. If they can get up and get to their groups and get to to meals and do the basics, even if they're not 100% engaged all the time, I'm happy. So we're going to reward that behavior so they see that there's a benefit to conforming to the rules. They're going to get discharged sooner if they conform to the rules with a successful discharge. If they adhere to their obligations, you know, this is another big criteria for successful discharge from IOP or residential, Are they doing their assignments? Are they getting to group on time? Are they staying clean? Are they staying awake during group? Are they doing their homework? Are they coming to individuals? Those are obligations that they set forth when you create their uh, treatment plan with them. And as they complete those, we want to make sure that it's building up their self-esteem so they can be like, yeah, I did that. And yes, I can rely on myself to complete something. Disregard for the safety of self or others. We're just going to have to talk about this as it comes up. Um, you know, in retrospect, was that really a good idea to go driving 90 miles an hour or whatever this issue is? Remorse lacking. Most of the time, this is not something that has to be taught for someone with an addiction because as they sober up, there's a lot of remorse to deal with. Um, But why wouldn't a child, you know, if they're going to develop a personality disorder, why would it be protective to fail to develop remorse? If people are hurting you all the time, if nobody else seems to have any remorse, then I can see where you might put up your walls and go, I'm not going to care about anybody else because nobody cares about me. Thank you very much. Can that be unlearned? Certainly. It takes a long time. It takes a while because this is, in my experience, one of the hardest issues to deal with when people have put up those walls and they will not make a connection with anybody else and they don't care about the impact of their actions on anybody else because if they care, then they risk getting hurt or they risk having to feel bad and they can't, can't tolerate that right now because they don't have the coping skills to deal with anything negative coming their way right now. They haven't decompressed enough from all the stuff they've been running from. Underhanded, deceitful, lies, and manipulative. Well, if it's rewarded when you're little or at any point in time, <laughs> if it's rewarded, you're probably going to learn this behavior. If you learn to manipulate others and, it, and there's a benefit to it, whether it's your job or you get what you want or whatever the case may be, Yeah, you're going to learn that. So we need to help people learn that they can get what they want by being honest and assertive, but they may have to put the work into it, which takes us down to impulsivity. Children are impulsive. Children are extremely impulsive. If they are not taught distress tolerance and frustration tolerance, they're going to continue to be impulsive. Most people with antisocial personality disorder according to the research, because like I said, I've only worked with two. Um, But according to the research, they don't grow up in great environments. They don't have somebody going, well, you know, sometimes you're going to fail, but you got to get back up and try again. Or you're not entitled to have this handed to you. You need to work for it. That's something that active, engaged parents do. And sometimes that's something that active, engaged teachers do. But our teachers, you know, and you know, hats off to them. There's 30 little, you know, 30 pairs of eyes and 30 children who are trying to figure out where the boundary lines are to one person. So it's really hard to for a teacher to take that over. So I don't want to try to put the impetus on the teachers. I think the parents need to be involved if that doesn't happen then they won't learn to plan. In early recovery, and, well, all the way through, but this starts in early recovery, planning. One of the criteria for treatment for most insurance companies, um, but also it's just a good practice, is to start discharge planning from the beginning. Why? We want to know where you're going. You know, what's this end point that we're looking at for when you're going to leave this episode of care? And when you leave, where are you going? So we can plan, because if you need to find a new place to live, you can't start looking for that two days before you're supposed to discharge. So we need to know what has to be set up so you can be where you want to be in 30 days. Same thing with APD. If you're working with a client with APD, you're going to have to set boundaries and set firm, hard limits and give people time, time limits. Expectations. It will feel like micromanaging at first because it is. I need you to do these things by tomorrow and be in my office. I worked with a wonderful probation officer in my first job out of college. He had the office next to me, and all of his probationers would show up that were supposed to be looking for work at 7 30 every morning, and they would show up for inspection. And he would want to see the um, business cards from the five places they went the prior day. And then he would also look at how they were dressed and, you know, maybe evaluate their resume or something if they were newer to the program. But he held them accountable every single day. It wasn't, well, you know, we'll probably meet tomorrow. Every single day. He taught them to be accountable. He taught them to plan ahead of time. If they were like, well, I couldn't get there because I slept in late and I missed the bus, his response was, well, You should have had an alternative. You should have had a backup plan because poor prior planning on your part does not constitute a crisis on mine. And he used slightly different words, but we're going to keep it clean. And temper and irritability and aggressiveness, whether it's a personality disorder or substance abuse and they're sobering up, there's a lot of emotions going on. There's an inability to control emotions. It just feels like a flood. One of the greatest feel- things of recovery is feeling feelings. And one of the most difficult things of early recovery is feeling feelings, because you don't people don't have the tools mastered yet to handle them in a new way. So we can expect irritability and aggressiveness, setting boundaries stopping your your client, letting them, you know, if they want to come in and they want to be irritable, you know, okay. The, The way I handle it, I let them come in and go on their little tirade, whatever it is, and then I'm like, are you finished? Let's talk about how this could have happened differently, or let's talk about what's making you upset. I'm not going to get into a power struggle with them when they're already irritable and aggressive. That's what they expect. That's what they're used to. So I am going to let them, you know, kind of diffuse themselves and then model and walk them through um, coping and figuring out either how to change the situation or change how they feel about the situation because sometimes situations are unchangeable. When somebody dies, that's not changeable. But you can change how you feel about the situation, which is why people work through the grief process. Um, you know, Maybe you have your parental rights terminated. And that's a done deal. You can't change that situation right now. How can you change the way you feel about the situation? Because staying angry and bitter is probably going to lead you back into a relapse. Regardless of the origins of the irritable and aggressive behavior, it probably means the person never learned the coping skills to to deal with the fight or flight reaction. They sort of have a short trigger, if you will. We want to look at what's making them irritable and aggressive and figure out how that might, how getting angry and being kind of nasty might have benefited them in the past. In general, it gives people power and makes other people feel subservient or pushes them away, which is a safety mechanism. If I can act like I'm Billy Badass, people aren't going to mess with me. Obviously, I haven't gone over all the possible reasons someone may develop these behaviors, but I hope I've brought it to your attention where you can look at a behavior and go, okay, whenever this happened, whenever this behavior developed, what function was it serving? How was it beneficial to this person? And how is it still beneficial? Because it still is or they wouldn't be doing it. How is it still beneficial? Many behaviors' characteristics of active addiction overlap with PDs. They begin in late childhood, early adolescence, and are pervasive. It's not just at work. It's not just in their relationships. It's not just as a parent. Recovery from both requires development of effective coping skills and addressing cognitive distortions that have been learned over time. Recovery interventions for this dramatic, emotional, erratic behavior, well, First, we got to get out of that emotional surge. We've got to get out of the tidal wave. So, distress tolerance is huge. Helping people feel a feeling and not have to act on it. Not even necessarily have to label it. They can just sit with it and be like, okay, this really sucks, but it'll be gone in 10 minutes. There are a lot of skills for distress tolerance. If you get a dialectical behavior therapy skills manual, um, there are tons of them out there. Um, you can. Identify a multitude of distress tolerance activities. I like to give my clients a list of different distress tolerance activities and have them practice and pick and choose and say, this will work for me, or I think this might work, or that's an interesting idea, and then they try them. Once they're past that initial rush of emotion, anger, fear, they need to be mindful to identify and process the source of the distress, right what really happened you know I saw today on TV that 80% of drivers 80% of drivers report having road rage that just blew my mind just absolutely blew my mind anyhow so 80% of drivers could use some mindfulness skills to identify and process the source of the distress and figure out whether it's something worth getting upset over or worth letting go changing the way they feel about the situation and then develop coping skills. So once you figure out what the source of the distress is, then you've got to figure out what to do with it. If I'm going to change how I feel about it, then I'm going to have to have some kind of coping skill to help me do that. If I'm going to change the situation, then I'm going to have, some, have to have some other skills to make that happen. All or nothing thinking. This is one of our most common cognitive errors. So awareness and elimination of cognitive distortions. If we start working on that, people are going to feel a lot happier because these extremes and these unrealistic expectations start to go away so people aren't feeling disappointed or scared. Hostility and aggression. Educate people about the fight-or-flight response. It's normal. It is a biological response when your body perceives a threat, when your brain perceives a threat, real or not, it will execute the fight-or-flight response. It says there's a threat. I need to protect myself. Now, sometimes we've overgeneralized and we may perceive a threat where none exists. So it's important to help people understand that some, some of those things may need to be counterconditioned a little bit. And then development of anger awareness and management skills. If this is not something to get angry about, how do you de-escalate? If this is something that legitimately makes you angry holding it and nurturing it and yelling at people and putting your fist through the wall are probably not going to be effective responses. So how do you manage your anger in order to effectively use your energy to fix the situation, change the situation? Uh, Hypersensitivity, especially to rejection. Awareness and addressing thinking errors. If people are thinking in all or none um, terms, they're going to be more sensitive to rejection. If they are very egocentric and somebody walks by and kind of grimaces at them and they take it personally, it may not be personal. So help them take in stimuli and learn to figure out whether it is a real thing to get upset over, to be sensitive about, whether it really meant rejection, or whether there could be other alternative explanations for why something happened, or why someone behaved this way. Awareness and addressing of abandonment issues. Whatever those issues are, if a person has some stuff that is leading them to have, you know, kind of a garbage term, but abandonment issues, um, we need to help them figure out what those are and address them. Because as long as they are afraid of people leaving, they're going to be hypersensitive to rejection. So we need to figure out where that comes from. And we need to help people develop self-esteem. High self-esteem lowers sensitivity to rejection. If they tend to be manipulative, generally they're being manipulative in order to protect themselves, to keep people around to validate them. Remember, there are very few situations where they're not wanting to be lavished in praise. So we need to help people develop these interpersonal skills with boundary setting, communication skills, saying what you, knowing what you want. And how do you say it assertively? How do you get into an authentic relationship with yourself and with others so you don't feel like you've got to manipulate them or con them all the time? And low self-esteem, weak self-concept, develop this self-esteem and this ability to internally validate. One of the concepts that we talk about a lot when we talk about self-esteem is taking away those roles. You know, you may be a mother, a teacher, um, a spouse, a daughter, whatever. But when all those are taken away, what are you? And this goes more towards values and attitudes like um, nurturing, creative, um, compassionate. You know, I made a whole list the other day on a. Uh, A Facebook post encouraging people to look at the qualities they have themselves, not what they do for other people, but what qualities characterize them that they can be proud of. If they have those qualities and they feel confident in those qualities, then they don't need anybody else to tell them that they are good enough. Most patients with addictions have traits associated with personality disorders. These traits can be loosely classified into thinking errors, which causes them to perceive a threat when none exists, and behavioral reactivity to escape or eliminate the threat. Important concepts for our clients in early recovery, regardless of whether it's a PD or an addiction, getting them to get honest with themselves and others Mindfulness, self-awareness, hope and faith, help them identify cognitive distortions and thinking errors that may be kind of zapping their hope and leaving them disappointed. If they expect too much, if they set the bar too high, they can end up losing hope and faith because nobody ever meets that that high bar. So what's realistic? One technique I use with my clients, especially if they're being hard on themselves, is I say, would you hold anybody else to this standard? A lot of our clients will set themselves, especially in early recovery, will try to set a high bar, and they may set it too high and set themselves up for failure. And then we need to encourage, um, encourage them to develop courage and discipline, <coughs> to remain constantly mindful, accept and address thoughts and feelings, and make conscious choices based on facts.